Thanksgiving and Christmas are sneaking up on us. Among other things, it's the season of puzzles. About the only time of the year puzzles come out in our house. Perhaps because there's a few down days and there's an opportunity to lay them out on the table and leave them out on a table. What could be worse than working for hours on a puzzle only to realize you're missing the final piece? Usually my first thought is, did it fall off the table because it was crammed onto a card table and someone diligently vacuumed the rug, sucking up the last piece? So I would not be beyond digging through the dirt in the vacuum cleaner, dumping it out to find that last piece because I just don't need 499 pieces of a puzzle if I don't have the last one. But then the thought hits me that an evil family member probably grabbed the last piece so that they could complete the puzzle. That's been known to happen. Our story today in the text is really about a missing piece. It's about that feeling of a gap, a void. The puzzle isn't complete. We don't have all the information. And we find this in this simple yet familiar description of this altar to an unknown God. Whatever this system of gods was in the Greek culture, it was incomplete. It had a hole in it. They felt like something was missing and they were actually right. Though they were wrong about the whole pantheon of gods and a city full of idols, they were actually right about that nagging feeling that there was some other god that they should be giving service to. In their rebellion against God and his revelation, they were living a life that could never be complete, that would never feel like all the pieces were together. By rejecting the truth, they were left to reckon constantly with the emptiness of sin, with that void that sin leaves. In our text, Paul can't help but speak up. The language there is that Paul was provoked in his spirit. It's interesting Luke used this same word in describing the separation of Paul and Barnabas. He says there, there was such a sharp disagreement that they parted ways. And the word there was this provocation. Here, we realize Paul is is seeing all this idolatry. And he's not angry at the people. He's not just kind of out of sorts. He's, He's bothered by the sense that Everything they're doing is stripping away the creator God and is putting in his place all of these false gods. This provocation is an indignation because the glory of God is being intentionally repressed so that man would look good in this Greek culture. He has to say something. And what he says challenges us this morning once again, as this book of Acts has continually done, to share the good news. Here's our big idea this morning. We must share the good news, the gospel, because it fills the void that sin leaves. You're going to encounter people this week who are missing the puzzle piece. Their life can never be complete unless the void that sin leaves is filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must share this gospel because it fills this emptiness, this void that is in every sinner's heart. I want us to look at our text this morning and think through seven observations about the void that sin leaves. And then we'll conclude with just a couple of applications with what do we do? Now that we've seen this void, 
and can even think back in our own lives of that void that was there before Christ, what do we do with that? Seven observations about the void that sin leaves. We begin with this phrase, an altar to the unknown God. Something that's unknown. We don't have all the information. We don't know who it is. As I just thought for a little bit about that name that was given, the altar to the unknown God, it led me to this conclusion that the void sin leaves reveals sin's lie. The void that sin leaves is reminding us that sin and temptation lie to us. Now, where do I get that? Well, we go back to Genesis 3 and we consider the account of the first temptation, the fall of man, and we find a word in that story that is also here in our text. And that word that catches our eye is actually part of the devil's promise to Adam and Eve in the delivery of his temptation. In Genesis 3, 5, we have a record of what the devil said. For God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Sin promised knowledge, a knowing, a full knowing, a knowing like God himself knows. And yet in our text, we read of this altar erected in a culture celebrating man and his accomplishments, and the name on the altar magnifies the fact that they don't know everything, that they don't know like God knows. This altar in Athens is an indictment of sin's lie. It's reminding us that sin promises but does not deliver. The devil said, you will know everything, just like God knows. And here they are at the height of humanity and Greek culture, saying there are some things we don't know. This altar is an altar about not knowing, which, which would stand ironically in this city of Athens the center of the world when it comes to learning and philosophy. And yet here is an altar to not knowing. Here is an altar to remind us that sin did not deliver on its promise to make us all-knowing like God himself. As a matter of fact, this altar also shows us that not only do we not know something, but we must not be on the level of God like sin promised us in Genesis 3 because we're afraid that we haven't appeased this unknown God. So we're giving him an altar. Everything in this story of an unknown God and the altar to him reminds us that sin will never fully deliver on what it says it offers. It will not satisfy us fully or permanently. The void that sin leaves reveals the lie of sin. Second observation. As we think of this void that sin leaves, we should see from our text that that void actually masquerades as enlightenment. Our text begins with Paul waiting at Athens. Now, the glory days of Athens, its philosophers, its architecture and all, were probably a couple hundred years before Christ lived on earth. But even now, a couple hundred years later, Athens is still the center of the world, the center of even Rome's empire when it comes to learning, philosophy, art, architecture, religion, medicine, ethics, all of the ideas of learning are celebrated in Athens. Corinth had become more of the political and commercial empire. Paul's going to go there next in his travels. 
But Athens still has their hold on that title of being the center of the world when it comes to learning, philosophy, all these areas. And yet in every one of those contexts, God is rejected and man is exalted or man-made gods are exalted. And there is nothing enlightened about embracing darkness. Goes without saying when we think of the word enlightened. But here was this culture of Athens celebrating everything that they knew. And yet in their love of knowledge, Romans 1 is clear to remind us that they were rejecting what else could be known. Masquerading as advancement, as progress, as enlightenment. They're really simply magnifying the emptiness of sin. In our culture, we hear much about how the world around us is more and more enlightened or more progressive or more advanced or more loving or more fair than anything you Christians could be. But this rejection of God's truth is never good. It's never better. It's never best. The rejection of God's truth is always folly, emptiness, ruin. The void sin leaves masquerades as enlightenment. It's always been that way. In Genesis 3, the great temptation was arriving at some other level, being like God. You could finally see and know like him. And that, that lure has drawn humanity through the ages. And it's not just the garden. It's not just philosophical Athens. It's today where the devil's lies are, are promoted as higher understanding, a greater advancement of humanity. But it's just not so. It's a, it's a masquerade. It's a facade. Number three, the void sin leaves drives a perpetual search. The void that sin leaves, that, that missing piece, forces us to continue searching for something to fill the void. Some of you lived years of your life searching for something to fill some nagging emptiness. Our text reminds us in verse 16 that Paul is in this city that was full of idols. There's a famous saying regarding Athens from biblical times that it was easier to find an idol than it was to find a man. A city literally populated with tens of thousands of idols. Multiple idols in every household. Multiple temples. Most famously, of course, the Parthenon. Gods everywhere. A perpetual search for something that was missing. Look at verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. What else is there? Maybe that'll fill the void. Maybe we add a little bit more philosophical nuance, a little bit more learning, and, and we'll be satisfied. It's a perpetual search. The next time you're really thirsty, I mean, dry mouth and parched lips. Drink a warm can of soda. You'll get the point. Sin leaves us looking for something more. We thought it would be refreshing, but a warm can of soda consumed kind of gums everything up even more. Probably actually leads to greater dehydration, though it was consumed with the thought of this would be refreshing, this would rehydrate. 
Sin leaves us looking for something more. It can't deliver on its promise. Rebelling against parents' authority can never deliver on its promise that you're going to be independent and mature and self-governed. Stealing money or time or cutting corners can never deliver on its promise that you're going to get ahead or have some sense of completion. Pornography can never deliver on its promise to match the relationship that is modeled after Christ and his church. Sin can never deliver what it says it will give to you. The devil is a liar. Jesus called him out on this. We should know it from Genesis 3, but John 8 makes it real clear for us. The devil is a liar. He's a master deceiver. And we are warned in the New Testament not to be ignorant of his devices, of the way he gets an advantage. In seventh grade, we had nine weeks of PE class given to wrestling. Our PE instructor was a high school and college wrestler, so forced all of us to learn how to wrestle. Well, you know, the first day we're like, we just want to get on the mat and wrestle and teach somebody a lesson. Well, after a couple weeks of clamoring for, we just want to wrestle, you're just teaching us all these moves and things. He said, fine. A period of wrestling is three minutes. And he had us get on the mat and he started the watch. And after about 15 seconds of flexing and trying not to be beat up by your opponent, we were exhausted. And we didn't want to do any more wrestling. Let's just stand around and watch the coach show how to tie some little seventh grader in a knot, right? We don't want to get out there and do that. What he was teaching us by showing us certain moves was that there are ways to get an advantage on your opponent, to leverage an arm or a shoulder or your body weight. The Bible talks about wrestling. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Is it any wonder it says we wrestle against this opponent and we shouldn't be ignorant of his tactics, his devices, his advantages that he tries to leverage against us? The greatest of which is deceit. And as much as we know about the lies of the devil, it is amazing how we could leave here this week after studying this text and singing of the cross, and our eye will be drawn to the, the shiny lie of the devil again. That manipulation is the best way to get what I want in a relationship. That somebody else really does have it better because they have a nicer house or car or family. And, and the lie will come up and, and we'll believe it again. And so here in our text, that the void sin leaves will drive this perpetual search. Sinners must drink of the water that Jesus gives, John 4 tells us, and then they will never thirst again. Some of you will remember the old, I guess it's probably more a gospel song, Satisfied. The chorus, Hallelujah. I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my every longing. By his blood, I now am saved. Number four, this void that sin leaves rejects God's revelation. The void is the rejection of God's revelation. Beginning in verse 24, Paul unfolds the truth that they have refused to add to their body of knowledge in Athens. Their library did not include the revelation of God, making their library somewhat inept, a fool's library, trying to get to truth but refusing to address the source of the truth. Let me read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Men, you'll recognize this. We've studied through these first couple chapters of Romans. 
Paul has written that he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is exactly the culture we live in. This is exactly the culture Paul lived in. This is exactly the culture of all humanity since Genesis 3. Wrestle with those few verses in Romans alone that will address for you what we think to be some kind of mystery or dilemma. What about those who have never heard? I don't don't even know if I need to give you an answer because I just read the answer. They have always known. They have always been hearing that God is and they are accountable to him but they have suppressed that truth. And by suppressing the truth that could make them wise, they have become fools. And all you need to do is turn on the news this week and wait for the next expert that's brought on to speak to some issue, some issue as to why a federal judge is perfectly justified in saying that children under the age of eight without parental consent can be run through hormonal changes and given medication to change their gender identity. It would seem absurd to anybody. But having suppressed truth, people that are intellectually capable, what people we would call smart, have become incredibly foolish Here in Athens, Paul makes it clear that God is the creator. Verse 24, he made the world and everything in it. World Magazine, which I've recommended to you as a great source of information, has a podcast that you could listen to called The World and Everything in It. How we look around and see our world with a biblical worldview. Paul was doing that for them by taking them back to the the one compass that could fix all their problems. There is a God and he made you. You're accountable to him. Verse 25, he makes it clear that God is the sustainer of all things. This God who made everything is not served by human hands, has no need of anything, Rather, he gives everything we need. We use the language of giving to God, giving him praise, giving him our service, giving him our lives, but it's not because he needs anything. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to be glorious. He doesn't need us to be happy or satisfied. He doesn't need us to help save the world. He doesn't need anything. Paul's making this clear. God made everything. He is not needy. We are. He gives to mankind life and breath and everything. He goes on to argue that this creator and sustainer is also Lord. He made from one man every nation. The very thought of nations implies rulership, kingship, dominion. But the king of kings, 
this original king is the one who made the idea of power and dominion and nations. He determined their periods and their boundaries and their dwelling place. He did this so that we would see that he is Lord. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That's interesting language and it makes us think, wait a minute, doesn't he say in Romans 3 that no one seeks for God and yet here he's saying they should seek God and feel their way for him. But he's making his point here that God is not far away and unknown, but because you've suppressed the truth, you've welcomed blindness when you should instead be seeking God with all your heart. But the God that was revealed is the God you have refused to acknowledge. And so you're left with this feeling your way toward him elsewhere in the text that would be described as a blind man groping, trying to find something. And the picture is here, in your willing blindness, you're saying God's unknown and far off. Truth is, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. In our very existence, we have the image of God stamped on us. He goes on to say, and even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now their poets would have attributed that to the god Zeus. Paul here is taking this kind of echo of truth that their own poets had and said, they, they were on to something. We all are this offspring of a God, but not the God that you're saying is unknown or known. If it's Zeus, this is the true God of heaven. Being then God's offspring, there's the truth. The poets got close, but not close enough. Being then God's offspring We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Remember, a city full of idols. And yet, Paul is saying, in this God that you're saying is unknown or otherwise, we live and move and have our being. So how could the God that made us, the God of whom we are offspring, how could he be made out of stone? Your whole city is a contradiction. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. As we think of Paul's revelation at Athens, His condemnation on this people is you need to repent because you have rejected the truth that can set you free. Paul's point is you have been willingly ignorant by saying he's far off or unknown, but that is not true. He is not a God made by hands out of gold or stone. He is the self-existent God who has stamped his image on his offspring, as they've been called here in the text. And even the pagan poets have alluded to this. Paul's point is God's fingerprints are everywhere and you are working hard in all of your philosophical learning to make sure you do not acknowledge him. In the French Revolution, there was a leading figure in the Enlightenment who declared to the church, We will pull down your steeples so that you will not be reminded of your superstitions. And it was the Christians who replied, yes, but you cannot rip the stars from space. You see, they recognized that though their culture was saying, there is no God, there is no divine authority, the Christians recognized that truth is everywhere. The void that sin leaves is a self-inflicted void. Sinners reject what is true and are left grabbing on to the best lie they can find. The lie that will take them the farthest in this life. 
but we know it ends in ruin. Number five, the void that sin leaves leads to final judgment. That's where Paul was headed in his text, verse 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul is clear, God will judge all men. Elsewhere in the Bible, we see that's the living and the dead. They will all be raised in that day, John tells us, and in that day, he will separate believers from unbelievers. The believers will enter into eternal joy, the unbelievers into eternal judgment. The final judgment day. It will take place through an appointed person, the text says, through a righteous person, through a once dead but now resurrected person, leaving no mystery to who this is. And obviously the rest of Scripture confirms that Jesus, the Son of God, will be that righteous judge, accomplishing the Father's judgment on all humanity. Now Jesus said, in his earthly ministry, that he would separate light from darkness. He said that he would separate sheep from goats, believers from unbelievers, wheat from tares. And they killed him for being a blasphemer, that he would be in the place of God to judge or pronounce that kind of judgment. But our text and Paul's argument is God raised him from the dead, proving Everything Jesus said, including that there would be a day of judgment. What Jesus said was true. That day is coming. And Paul wants everyone there to hear this educated, educated, sophisticated crowd who thought they knew everything, but they did not know that God was going to judge the world through Jesus Christ. And we need to know this as well, friends, that God knows who you are. Wheat or tare, sheep or goat, believer or unbeliever. And it's stark. It's simple. We don't need explanations. Well, I've done or I've been in church or I... No, we, we don't need any of that. None of it matters. What matters is your faith resting in Jesus. Are you a believer, one who is believing in Jesus, having turned from sin, knowing only Jesus can save and fit you for the day of judgment? God knows. The people around you may not. They may think one way or the other, but they cannot conclusively know. They only observe fruit, and we're told in Scripture that even that evidence and fruit can be misleading at times. So be sure, be sure your faith is in Jesus. And by that, I don't mean you need to come forward and pray at a church. By that, I mean right now, cry out to Jesus that he would rescue you from your sin. Because the day of final judgment is coming. And God raised Jesus from the dead so that we would know he is serious about eternity. And only those who are as righteous as Jesus Christ will enjoy eternal heaven with God. Number six, the void that sin leaves necessitates our gospel witness. This is why this story is included in the text. The book of Acts, this record of the advance of the kingdom by the power of the Spirit in the witness of the believers. And so we see in verse 23, Paul standing there in the midst of the Areopagus or Mars Hill, as it's also known, says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He highlights the unknown God's altar. And he says at the end of verse 23, what therefore you worship as unknown, 
This I proclaim to you. In other words, the missing piece of your puzzle, I have for you. The picture will be complete if you hear what I have to say. You're saying there's an unknown, I'm saying it can be known. You're saying we don't know who that God is, I'm saying I know who it is. This is your mission this week. Because this void that sin leaves in your neighbors and your co-workers, in the, the, the people you're going to be around this week, the void that sin leaves is filled by that missing puzzle piece that you know so well, that we sing of every Sunday, that we read of, that we see in the Word, that we rejoice in in living our Christian lives and with our Christian families. But the great need is that we tell others about this peace that has been found. There's a whole chapter in Luke's gospel about lost things that are found. You have the missing piece. The void sin leaves necessitates a gospel witness. Somebody saying, here it is. I found it. The one whom my soul so long has craved. We must share the gospel this week. We must say like Paul, hey, good news. What you've been searching for today, I'm proclaiming to you. He says in verse 22, I perceive you are very religious. Use that this week. Somebody mentions anything remotely religious, belief, say, hey, I heard you mention belief. What makes you so sure of what you believe? Throw it on them. You're worried about answering questions and, oh, I'm not a good apologist. Make them apologize for suppressing the truth. Paul says, hey, about this unknown God, let me tell you who that is. Verse 28, he says, even some of your poets have said. Paul took this stab at truth that some of the secular poets made and said, hey, let me fine tune that. Let me show you where they really got that idea. They were on to something, but they didn't get to the heart of it. Find ways, those connections, that common ground where you can step right into your culture and really remember what Paul was doing. He was just saying, there is a God who made us, and we're accountable to him. Those two lines alone are a greater apology than most of the people you talk to are going to be ready for. There is a God who made us, and we are accountable to him. That, that, that's going to blow their minds. They're going to run away from you as fast as they can. But this is what Paul did. He didn't back away from their poets. He didn't back away from their idolatry. He found something that he could latch onto and say, hey, what about that? Tell me more about this. And he started those conversations, that gospel witness. I would encourage you to use all of your person, all of your life experiences, all of your family history, all of your learning, all of your pain, all of your interests, all of your hobbies, and recognize all of that comes to play in how you engage with people for the sake of the gospel. I don't know that everybody would have been able to stand at Mars Hill and engage that culture with their culture. I don't know if Barnabas or Silas or Timothy knew the Greek poets like Paul did, having been raised in his Greek family. But all that came to bear in the way God used Paul. You might like flying kites. Well, go fly a kite with the hopes of sharing the gospel with that other odd bird that likes to fly kites, right? How many of you have ever been to the kite festival out there? It's actually kind of interesting. 
I'm just saying you might have an interest in science. You, you might know some stuff about medicine. You might be good at figuring out politics. Recognize that everything God has made you to be serves your witness. So don't miss any context where God wants you to shine for his sake. Our text began, Paul was waiting at Athens. It doesn't even say he went there to share the gospel. This is one of these odd city stops where we don't have a record that Paul was going there on purpose for the proclamation of the gospel. He's waiting for his teammates to arrive and he can't help but say something because of everything going on around him. There might be some conversation this week you're overhearing. We heard of it in Sunday school. And you just realize, all right, maybe I just need to say something here. Because clearly the blind are leading the blind. And I might be the only one here who sees with gospel clarity. Finally, remember that sin the void that sin leaves is remedied by repentance and faith in Jesus. We talk much about your witness, but remember, it's not up to you to save people. That's God's business through his Holy Spirit's work of convicting sinners of sin and righteousness and of judgment to come. Your task is to take the stand and testify to who this God we claim to love and serve really is. Their great need is repentance and faith. And in our text in verse 30, we read, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The times of ignorance God overlooked. That can sound confusing to us and in, Maybe he excused sin in the past. It's not really what's going on here. The simple answer is, first and foremost, God is patient. He is long-suffering. He does not always immediately judge pagan unbelief and idolatry, evidenced by the fact that the city of Athens is still standing 500 years after their glory days and still reveling in their idolatry. But while the truth once kind of came through Israel and was kind of their religion and some of the Gentiles participated in it, that truth has now exploded and is being announced to the nations as the Son of Man is lifted up at Calvary. So when that happened, now God is announcing this gospel for all humanity. He'll draw men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So in times past, God overlooked their ignorance, meaning he didn't immediately judge them in their idolatry. But now there is no excuse. Christ has been made known for the salvation of sinners. And sinners must repent or face certain judgment. And obviously Paul alludes to more of a gospel than just repent because he's spoken already of the resurrected Christ. And then they say, we want to hear more of this. So we can't be sure we have every word Paul has spoken because really reading this, it would almost sound like an odd gospel presentation. Speaking of all being of one man, offspring of God, God's going to judge the world, so repent. We'd want to hear more about maybe the righteousness of Christ that is ours, his atoning death. But that's, it, it's all in there. And if this is all that Paul said, and these are his exact words, then we do hear of the resurrected, righteous, ruling Christ who will judge sinners if they don't repent. Repentance and faith are the great need of sinners. So what do we do with this study of the void that sin leaves? It's good to see it. 
It's good to see it with fresh eyes because maybe when we first recognized our life was missing something, that was a long time ago. Maybe we've lived a long time in the Christian life and it just kind of seems normal. Let me give you just three applications. They're not there on your notes. Take them to heart. Write them down. Pray that the Spirit uses them in your heart this week. Number one, live a life of gospel joy. Having studied the void that sin leaves, we should not be living as if we're needing something. We should be living a life of gospel joy. Jesus is enough. Show the world that you are not thirsty anymore. But too many Christians are scurrying around trying to get something more and we don't look very much unlike a thirsty world. The crazy sports fans, the weekend lake life people, the workaholic with nicer cars and extra toys, the great parent making sure their kid's involved in everything, the ever-popular friendly person with thousands of Facebook friends and no deep relationships, the addict of drink or drug. It's endless. People searching for something. And if we're not careful, our life doesn't look very satisfied. The unbeliever wouldn't want to live the way you live because you don't seem happy, content, or at peace. So it is imperative, having studied the emptiness of sin, that we live in what Jesus said was fullness of life. Number two, see with compassion the emptiness of worldly pursuits. See with compassion those who are pursuing worldly pursuits. Recognize they're clamoring for something. Picture, you know, the in, in my years, it was the, the young people that were dressed in the goth look, all the black stuff. You remember the late 80s and 90s? It's kind of at the heart of Columbine and that early school shooting. What you saw were kids that were looking to just fit in somewhere, to identify with something, to have a place of belonging. There was a void they were trying to fill. And that's just one of a thousand drugs of choice. The reality is when we see the emptiness of sin, some of that provocation in Paul's spirit was compassion for people that were going to live and die unsatisfied. It's no wonder he couldn't help himself. I got to say something. Do we care enough for them to give them the living water? Or do we care too much for us that we don't want to be thought of as some crazy lunatic? Live a life of gospel joy, see with compassion, and witness to the truth of God. The God who is, the God that you can know, the God who made you, the God you're accountable to. Witness to the truth of God. Sometimes I think it's helpful to go through little exercises like, if somebody mentions God in a sentence this week in the workplace, what is one sentence you could say in response to them that would speak to God or your relationship with him? What would you say? God, it was hot this weekend. Okay, they brought him up. What are you going to say about Paul's argument in Acts? A bell should go off in your head. I know who that God is. He created everything. He sustains everything. And yes, even that hot glowing sun is his plan 
to make sure we enjoy life on this earth. He sustains everything. So what are you going to say in that moment? Maybe you'll just say, man, I enjoyed worshiping that God this weekend. Gathered with a lot of other people who give thanks for the sun that shines in. Yes, even when it gets a little hot. But be ready with something. Why is everyone else so loose-tongued and we feel like we can't say anything? Push back against the lies of the devil that you'll say it wrong or say the wrong thing or it won't be enough or it'll be too much. Be done with that. The Holy Spirit is not inept. He'll give you the help you need. But I don't know if we want his help. We want to keep feeling helpless so then we don't have to do anything. But we have to do something. We have to witness to the truth. We have to make it known. The missing puzzle piece has been found. And it'll fit perfectly. So Heavenly Father, would you help us this week by your Spirit's promptings, by the power of your word that we've seen this morning, to live a life of gospel joy, to have eyes that see with gospel clarity and compassion for those who are pursuing anything except Jesus. And then give us the words to speak, actual words to actually speak this week to someone that would at the very least draw their attention to you. Perhaps that would open the door to speak in depth about the life and the peace and the joy and the eternal security that we have by faith in Jesus. Jesus, who satisfies our souls. Jesus, in whose name we pray. Jesus, in whose name we go. And all God's people said, Amen.